Good morning. I probably should have come up here earlier in the service and uh, kind of looked out um, because I haven't seen this image of you guys with faces and very responsible masked people in pews next to each other. Like this, um, <clears throat> uh, just let me absorb it for a second, okay? Hi, this has been your new normal for a little bit. It hasn't been mine. And I've also missed you. I have missed you. I have enjoyed worshiping and being blessed uh, by Pastor Vicki at Waterloo Christian Reformed Church with my family, of sitting in a pew and hearing someone else preach and be blessed. I have missed this, and I have missed you. And I am so deeply joyful to be standing here with you and to be looking out at your faces and hearing you sing in this place with a full, just, I've missed the congregational song. I have missed that, and my heart has missed that. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> I even wore, like, a power blazer, so, like, I wouldn't get emotional, but I made it lavender, so maybe now I just am. <sighs> okay. People of God, oh, whom I love and who God loves, we are going to walk together into wondering about and looking at what it means when we say, I believe in the life everlasting. And we're gonna do that in two ways. We're gonna hear a portion of scripture from the Gospel of John, and we're also going to hear the question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. But I think before we come to both, <laughs> before we walk into this, let us ask for the Spirit's guidance, blessing, and presence with us. Please pray with me. Our faithful God, our good King, we come before you on this day when we remember that your Son was not only our crucified one, our resurrected one, but also our ascended one. And so we come before you asking that you send your Spirit to move not just in our heads, <laughs> but in our hearts and in our lives changing us, transforming us through your word and promises that we may look more and more like our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So before we come to scripture, we are going to do the question and answer from Heidelberg Catechism on this part of the Apostles' Creed. And I'm gonna ask you the question and together we are going to say the answer, okay? So people of God, how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? And hear then the word of God for us this morning. From John 14, verses 1 through 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. 
If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You haven't tasted a real watermelon until you have tasted a fresh-picked Mississippi watermelon. As anyone who has grown watermelons, who has grown watermelons? Yeah, there's a reason that only like three of us have tried to grow these things. Watermelons need a long growing season. They need humid summers and mild winters. And guess what we don't have? Definitely that mild winter. Mississippi's humid summers and mild winters give the watermelon vine exactly what it needs. There's some form of alchemy that happens between the black, rich soil of Mississippi and the heavy, water-drenched, humid air that yields the kind of watermelon that made Mark Twain sing its praises, and this is what he said about the watermelon. Watermelon is the chief of this world's luxuries. King by the grace of God over all the fruits of the earth. And when one has tasted it, he knows what the angels eat. Have you ever tasted a watermelon like that? The watermelon that I pick up at Sobeys, even in July, does not make me think I'm eating the food of the angels. I mean, it's good, it's sticky, I make a pile of rinds, you know, on the back porch after, after uh, dinner in the backyard, and I eat them and it's good, it's sweet, but I don't consider it to be the king of the fruits of the earth and angelic food. It's good enough, it's good, it's delicious, but apparently you haven't tasted a real watermelon until you've tasted a fresh-picked Mississippi watermelon. This is what my friend Kay taught me. This Mississippi-born woman who never lost her southern drawl even though she lived in the Canadian North for a very long time. She knew the telltale signs of a good pick. It had to have a yellow ground spot, not a white one, where it rested on the ground. A good melon should feel heavier than it looks. And you gotta lift it to your nose and get a good, strong scent of freshness. 
And then you know that inside, when you break it open, you will have that ruby red flesh and those big, beautiful black seeds, none of the seedless stuff, and a rind so sweet that you could eat it whole. As Kay described the watermelon of her youth, I realized I had never tasted a watermelon like Kay had tasted a watermelon. And I learned this from Kay, not walking with her at a farmer's market, that would make sense, not sitting on my front porch and talking while eating a subpar seedless watermelon grown somewhere not in Mississippi. I learned this all from her while visiting her for the last time. Kay was dying. And in our last conversation together, she talked about her longing for a real good Mississippi watermelon. She was in Barrie, Ontario, very far away from a fresh-picked Mississippi watermelon, and she longed for it. And she longed not just for the watermelon, but for the joy that came along with the taste. Memories of her friends and family, of watermelon festivals, which they apparently have in Mississippi, of long, warm summer nights, memories of laughter and love, of belonging and the taste of home. All of that in a watermelon that tasted like what the angels must eat. Kay was remembering the joys of her life as she came to her end. The Apostles' Creed ends with what comes after the end. I believe in the life everlasting. Sometimes we come to the end of the creed and we say this line unthinkingly. Often on a Sunday morning, we just kind of rattle it off, quickly get to the amen, sit down, and the service continues. Sometimes we come to the end of the creed and we can't get the words out because a dear one of ours has died or is dying and the tears come quicker than the words. And sometimes we come to the end of the creed and we wonder if we actually really believe this kind of religious happy ending. And sometimes we come to the end of the creed and we hang on to these words for dear life. To the promise of them, to the hope of them. For us, for those we love, when we come to our end. We close out the Apostles' Creed right before the Amen. Wondering just what we believe what we need to be true. But the truth is, none of us are experts. We are still breathing. We have not tasted death. 
None of us are experts. No one living knows the answer for certain. When we come to our end, what's next? The funny thing is, it's probably not funny, the funny thing is that it's not just religious people who wonder about what comes after the end. Even while the numbers of religiously committed people has declined significantly in the past decades, like it's gone down, the number of people who believe in the afterlife, do you think it went up or down? Fingers, thumbs, thumbs ups, down. Down. Oh, some up? <laughs> mm-hmm. Up. The numbers have increased. Religious observancy has gone down. Belief in an afterlife has increased. People who do not consider God at all important to them somehow expect to go on living after they die. There was a sociologist of religion was looking at this kind of perplexing data, trying to figure out what in the world to make of it. Do you know what their analysis was? That it's another version of our culture's death-denying tendencies. And an overinflated and ingrained sense of entitlement. And so that even when people ditch God, religion's not important, I'm going to live how I want, supernatural, whatever, people still think the general sense that good people go to heaven when they die. And it's never in doubt that obviously they're a good person. They are entitled to go on living. You kind of see that actually popping up more and more in popular culture. Whether it's a digital life everlasting, like in the show Upload, where you die but you're uploaded and you get to choose your afterlife. Oh, talk about entitlement. Or, even one that I enjoyed, The Good Place, where you just get a second chance to be a good and virtuous person. In the great beyond, with a dude from Cheers. We all wonder, believer, non-believer, follower of Jesus or any religion, or not, about what's next. About what comes at the end. About what comes at our end. Is life everlasting? In our portion of scripture this morning, here in the Gospel of John, we eavesdrop on a portion of a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It's his last conversation with them before the cross. They've clued in that something big is going to happen. Something big. Jesus is saying goodbye to them. It's kind of like a farewell. He's giving his instructions general encouragement, gentle reminders, things to keep in mind. And Jesus looks at them, and he knows they are scared. 
They don't know what's coming next. They don't know what's going to happen. And Jesus looks at his scared friends and he assures them. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, trust in God. Believe me and trust me too. For my father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? You know the way to the place where I'm going. The disciples nod their heads. Mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Thomas, God love him, is the one who says what they're all thinking. Lord, we, we don't, we don't know. You, you tell us we do know, but we don't know. We don't know where you're going and how can we possibly know the way. How are we not going to get lost? Is there a map? Can you give us some signposts, just some general guidelines, just landmarks? How do we follow you when we don't know where you're going? Thomas wanted to have things clearly laid out. I like Thomas. I get Thomas. He wanted the clearly marked way to follow. Rather than having to stumble around and get lost, he wanted Jesus to give him the destination to plunk into his Google Maps and get there with every step listed and guided. To have certainty that he wouldn't lose his way. That he'd be able to find his own way. Don't want me to let my heart be troubled? (laughs) Just tell me what I need to know then, and I'll be good. Just lay it out for me. He wanted information. He wanted certainty. And then Jesus does what Jesus does and just reorients his whole understanding of what it means to truly know the way. Thomas, you you know the way because I am the way. You know the way because you know me. You know me, Thomas. Trust me. Jesus closes out his time with his disciples in this kind of final conversation they're having with a prayer. And he's just about to taste betrayal and death. And in that prayer, Jesus shares what life everlasting actually is. And it is not reducible to a geographical heavenly location where good people go to die, or when they die. Nor is it just simply the addition of infinite years on our tiny human lifespan, because we're entitled to it. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give life everlasting to all those you have given him. And now this, this is the life. This is the life everlasting. 
that they may know you, the only true God you have sent. Into their troubled hearts, into their wondering about what comes next, Jesus gives them a promise that they have a home. They have a home with him now and always. No matter what comes, they cannot get lost. They may be scared, but they don't need to worry. They know the one who is the way. They know the one who is the life, now and always. Life everlasting, it's not just added years, is not an escape to heaven. Life everlasting is knowing and trusting and living in relationship with the one who has tasted death for us. Who not only tasted death for us, but returned to life for us. So that we know that death is not the end. Death is not the final word. Life everlasting is knowing and trusting the one who is our home, now and always. Maybe you noticed how the catechism frames this question. As the catechism unpacks the Apostles' Creed, it often asks about a certain article, what do you believe concerning But I love what the Catechism does here. It gives us a far gentler inquiry. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? And the Catechism invites us to answer that question with just a holy wonder. After this life, I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human imagination can even begin to imagine. There's holy wonder. But then there's a kind wisdom here too. The Catechism points us to our experiences already lived here and now, of joy. Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, ah, so after this life, I will have perfect blessedness. Our comfort about what's next is grounded in our experiences of joy now. Our experiences of joy now are glimpses of life everlasting. Signposts, landmarks of the blessedness to come.
of what's next. They're breadcrumbs along the path, giving us a foretaste of our destination, of our home. Our experiences of joy now are the gifts of our good God pointing us to the richness of the beauty of the life that is ours in Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. Of a life lived in the presence of God, the source of eternal joy. Our experiences of joy now, all the little, what big, all the little moments, all the big moments, all the sweet ones and all of the beautifully hard ones. Because joy is not happiness. Joy can come in the darkness. All of these experiences become a collection of eternal joy that points us to the shape of the life everlasting. At the end of her life, Kay remembered the joys of her life. Gathering them up like breadcrumbs on a path leading her deeper and deeper into what's next. Gathering her joys up like breadcrumbs on a path to the fullness of life made possible by knowing and trusting the one who is her way and her life. Kay knew and trusted the way. Remembering each experience of joy as a foretaste of the life in Jesus that is ours. Each of us has experiences of joy that all are all our own unique and beloved to us, and they are the gifts of God for the people of God. For Kay, one of her joys was a watermelon that tasted like home. That tasted like belonging. That tasted like what the angels eat. And it was a profound joy that pointed her when she came to her end, to the goodness of the God she trusted with her life and she trusted with her death. When we come to our end, and we will, each of us, our collection of joys will look so gloriously different. But they all lead us in the same direction toward the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the life everlasting. So however you come to the end of the Apostles' Creed, whether it is with fear or hope, with grief or with doubt, hear the words of Jesus this morning for you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For I am the way, 
and the truth and the life everlasting. You know the way. And dear ones, remember and trust that even as we already now experience the beginnings of eternal joy in all of our beautiful and hard moments, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human heart has ever imagined the things God has prepared for those who love him. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our faithful God, we come to the end of the Apostles' Creed, knowing that it is only possible because of all that has come before. What we believe about you as God the Father, your Son as our crucified, resurrected, and risen Lord, and your Spirit at work among us. So where we doubt, send your Spirit to bring faithfulness. Where we fear, send your spirit to bring us hope. Oh, and meet us in our joys so that we may have a glimpse of the blessedness of being in your presence both now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. in response to the promises of Jesus, as a way of singing about the life everlasting, we are going to stand and sing, crown him with many crowns. Stand when the music begins. <laughs>